Oh, hey there. This is your friendly neighborhood rat detective just popping in at the front of the episode for a bit of a spoiler warning. Today we're going to be chatting about Star Wars and some of the legal issues that arise from the original films up to and including The Mandalorian. If you're making your way through the series and are concerned about spoilers, maybe wait to listen to this one until you're all caught up. Whatever you decide, you do you, and may the 4th be with you. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is my co-host, who last episode we learned has or may have a pair of chicken goggles. That is Kaylee Byers. How are you doing, Kaylee? I'm doing good. You know, I actually don't have those chicken glasses yet, but that's a very good reminder that I need to call my grandmother and get her to send them to me because I need them. How are you doing? Oh, you know, just doing wonderful over here uh, in my abode, which I have not left for weeks. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) It's starting to smell in here. Yeah. So today we are going to be diving into Star Wars and legal matters with Thomas Harper. We're really excited. This is like the perfect sort of meeting of the nerd night interests. In addition to being a huge Star Wars fan, Thomas is also an army JAG attorney and podcast for the legal geeks where he uses Star Wars to teach about legal topics. So today we're going to be diving into those legal topics. Thanks so much for joining us, Thomas. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate you guys. You guys can see me. Maybe the audience listening can't. Um, despite several weeks in quarantine, I do not look like a Wookiee yet. Uh, <laughs> thanks to uh, we've reached the point in my household of uh, bathtub haircut where I flip a bucket over in the bathtub, sit in the center and sit very still while my wife cuts my haircut. <laughs> and it's almost like living a scene in an action movie where like a bomb squad is trying to defuse a bomb, except my hair is the bomb and (laughs) don't cut the wrong wire. So awesome. (laughs) So we thought we might start off with, I mean, because you're a huge Star Wars fan, can you tell us your Star Wars origin story? What, what got you interested in Star Wars? Oh man. I, so I just think my dad was a public school art teacher growing up. So he had a little art studio and had, you know, toys and stuff all around it. And and so I was exposed a little bit, but one day I sat down, we had our, if you remember console TVs, those, we had like a little 20 inch TV and then surrounding it was like 800 pounds of solid wood. Um, and those big knobs on the front, we had one of those and we did have a VCR and this is like the early nineties, like 92, 93. And he popped in a, a VHS recorded copy that he had recorded of a new hope off of like Fox or TBS, like some cable station. And so I watched it straight through with commercials thinking that that's, you know, that's the way movies were. They just had these little breaks in them where you got to see about toilet paper and and paper towels and stuff. How refreshing that there was a time when there was toilet paper and paper towels. (laughs) I know you just look at that garbage. Who would ever need that except on occasion? That won't be worth the price of gold one day. Um, (laughs) No, but I was... I, I joke because, you know, there are all these folks that uh, that had these experiences in the theater and just that sort of I never had that. It was like sitting in my living room uh, in front of this tiny TV and a garbled picture. But from the moment sort of that first Star Destroyer came on the screen in A New Hope, I mean, I, you know, I might as well have been in the theater. You, you couldn't have like shaken me out of that trance that I was in from start to finish. 
So Thomas, you, so then later on in life, if we fast forward through your timeline here, you decide to become a lawyer. And at some point you connect these two worlds, the, the world of law and the world of Star Wars. And what sort of take us through sort of like that story when you started to connect those two? It was like the moment where I ignored the Ghostbusters warning of not crossing the streams. <laughs> so I was an army officer on active duty at the time. And uh, one of the early jobs that I had in the JAG Corps was as an operational law attorney. So the business there is is advising on the rules of engagement, the law of war, the law of armed conflict, that sort of thing. And part of my job, at least at home station before I deployed to Afghanistan, was going around and pr helping prep units to deploy. So that involved teaching, uh, in some cases, young soldiers about these these rules of engagement that they would be going out to use and stuff. And you would think that it's, you know, these are soldiers, they're trained to, to do their thing. You would think that it would be easy to impart some of these lessons to them because it's, it's what they do. But what I found was when I was able to connect some of these lessons and some of these rules to a, a movie scene, whether it was Star Wars or, or something else, that's when the light bulbs clicked on. You could see out in the audience where they were starting to make the connection and be like, oh, okay, well, now I get it. Like, here's this like nerd talking to me in abstract terms. I don't really get it. But when you put it in the context of like Luke Skywalker against the Death Star or something like that, that's when the light bulb clicked. So I, it was a really effective teaching tool. And then one day I get a call from my buddy who was stationed out on the West Coast. And he said, I just came from San Diego Comic Fest. And there's this group there that presented a mock trial on Batman. And I was like, wait a minute, what? And he was like, and they also had a, a legal discussion of Star Wars as a panel discussion. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> you, you're messing with me, right? Like, this is not real. He's like, no, man, look them up. This was back in 2016. And I, I cold emailed uh, Josh Gilliland, who's one of the co-founders. And I pitched an article about whether the use of the Death Star is a war crime. And he said, this sounds great. And it, it the rest is history. So speaking of, of the death of the Star Destroyer as as a, as a war crime, like maybe as, let's start there with getting into some of these particular situations in the Star Wars universe. And since it sounds like your first uh, foray into it, maybe to walk us through some of like the nuances of that idea of the Empire as war criminals. Star Wars is very good at making things like black and white. There aren't many gray areas in Star Wars, which is why it's a beautiful thing to use as a teaching vehicle, because you know, that's what George Lucas intended, you know, light versus dark, bad versus good. And when you take the Death Star, even though there are sort of multiple layers of legal issues there, at its core, when you look at its most famous use against Alderaan blowing up Leia's home planet, what you get down to there is an issue of targeting in, in the real world law. And so when, when you look at how war is fought, it seems like an oxymoron maybe to, to think that there are rules surrounding something as violent and destructive as, as combat. And, and there haven't always been, but over the millennia, as bloody war after bloody war was fought and, and lives were lost, folks started to get sick and tired of the destruction, the, the unbridled destruction. And so you started to see a slow march toward trying to rein in that destructiveness. And it gave us what we have today, which is the law of armed conflict, which is just a package of all sorts of international treaties and domestic laws. Um, you know, no need to dive into that that sort of fire swamp. We call them in the business the, the the sacred texts, as Luke Skywalker would say. But in any event, when you look at it, 
you, you can't just shoot anything or blow up anything. Certain things are off limits. And one of the, the clearest pieces of, of targeting that, that's a no-no, that's completely out of bounds, is intentionally targeting civilians. And this is where I tie it back into Star Wars being good at making things black and white. Here you in Alderaan, you have an entire planet of civilians. Uh, Leia stands there on the bridge of the Death Star, just pleading with Grand Moff Tarkin. She says, no, we're a peaceful people. We have no weapons. Uh, you can't do this. And there is no gray area with Alderaan, as, as far as we know in canon. Uh, there might be a spy here or there. I mean, certainly Leia and her adoptive father, Bail Organa, um, are, are working for the rebellion and doing things. But by and large, the average Joe there on the planet is a non-combatant. And in the real world, you can't intentionally target non-combatants. Uh, certainly the, the LOAC, as it's called for short, understands that there can be collateral damage, but there are limits to, to all that sort of thing. And, and here, there's, there's no gray area. Grand Moff Tarkin intentionally targeted Alderaan for a reason. And in fact, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that this was a, a non-military target that there was no ne military necessity to blow this planet up. That's why he told Leia, if, if you prefer another target, a military target, then name the system. He's trying to extract information out of her, uh, namely the, the location of the secret rebel base. And when you go back and you watch that, it's, it's you know, the, the first time you watch it, you're like, Grand Moff Tarkin's an asshole. Then you go back and watch it again with this little bit of extra knowledge. And you're like, he was really cold and calculating. This was like, when you talk about breaches of the law of war and war crimes, an intentional like mass killing of civilians like this is, you know, just a, a great example of what a ruthless murderer this guy is and what the lengths that he's willing to go to execute Emperor Palpatine's intent. So it really sends it home when you understand sort of the, the framework behind it. Well, Dantooine is far too remote to make a, an effective demonstration of the of the battles of the star system anyway. So, oh, my gosh, this is the episode where I get my nerd card taken away. <laughs> <laughs> but what's great is like and what I love is, is, you know, folks have seen I don't care how many times you've seen Star Wars, like these lines ring true, like you've heard these lines before, but getting to go back and watch it with a little bit of extra flavor or a different spin on it is why like why I love taking a look at this stuff like this. So if we go through some of like the the big points that you made, we first heard you talk uh, at the Nerd Nightathon uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the key points that you made was the legality that the rebels may have in their destruction of the Death Star. And maybe sort of like take us through um, a bit of that scenario. Yeah, so here you're, you're flipping it on, on its head. So you're taking sort of the, the clerk's approach to it. Every few years, somebody comes out with like a clickbait article about like, well, what, what about those rebel terrorists, you know, blowing up all these millions of Imperials on the Death Star? You know, why, why don't people wag the finger at the, the Rebel Alliance? And when it comes to A New Hope and the first Death Star, it, it really comes down to a question of self-defense of the, the rebels and their status as combatants. Whether somebody is a combatant or not, we, we touched on the importance of it a little bit with that talk of Alderaan because, you know, you, you are either in the fight or you're not. You either have a protected status as somebody like a civilian that can't be targeted 
or you have some other status, uh, an unprivileged uh, belligerent or a combatant, something along those lines. And that matters because your classification as a fighter on the battlefield makes a difference in how you get treated if you're captured. So if you're entitled to, say, prisoner of war protections, it matters in terms of the protections that are offered by the Geneva Conventions. It's, it's really important. And so when you look at the Rebel Alliance and you wonder, well, this is a guerrilla movement conducting a civil war. Like, why are they bothering to wear uniforms? Why do they have, why do they wear insignia openly? Why isn't this like Rogue One where uh, you see the partisans of uh, Saul Guerrero in, in that s- uh, sort of great scene on Jeddah where they ambush that Imperial patrol. They're like dressed as civilians. And then suddenly they throw off their civilian clothes and reveal their blasters and shoot up the stormtroopers. Like that seems like an effective way of fighting. Why don't the rebel Alliance soldiers do that? And the question comes down to, to their legitimacy, right? Uh, things like a unit wearing a uniform openly, things like wearing a distinctive insignia matter. And, and in the broader context, when it gets to, to the idea of, open warfare against the galactic empire, they at least want some shot at their, their prisoners having some sort of protections. I don't know if Emperor Palpatine stopped to create like the Imperial Geneva conventions. I kind of doubt it based on his background, but you know, we'll pretend like they have something like that. The rebels would have a reason. And and there are multiple points in different star Wars uh, mediums, whether it's the rebels TV show or clone wars, where you do see this tug about, it, it's not just about winning battles. It's about fighting and doing the right thing. And if you if you sacrifice your morals and you sacrifice sort of the, the moral high ground in chasing a battlefield victory, what's that victory really worth? And and so when we bring it back to Yavin, you know the the rebels there are faced with a situation really of. Uh, self-defense. When the Death Star enters the the planet's orbit, the Death Star is not there to pay him a kind visit. No, they're bringing the Death Star there to blow the hell out of that planet, to blow up the rebel base. Tarkin himself says, uh, you know, this this day is seen. Uh, we'll see the end of the the Rebel Alliance. Like they're they're going to snuff this place out. This is their the Imperial military's sole focus has been finding this place and putting an end to this civil war once and for all. So there's no question that the rebels as an entity, as a fighting force, are facing down certain death if they don't do something. And whether you're an unprivileged belligerent, whether you're a combatant uh, or a uniformed uh, fighter, you're always going to have, and the U.S. always recognizes the inherent right to self-defense, both at a, a national level when it comes to countries responding to countries, but also on the battlefield. Uh, you've got a right to defend yourself. And the rebels here facing a, you know, a, a super laser blast that would end their existence had every reason to launch those 30 fighters and uh, do what they could to, to try to uh, destroy the Death Star. So what you call a terrorist, I call a, uh, a legitimate military strike. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, get into maybe that clerk's debate for just a second. You know, if you think about the, some of the workers that did help build that big battle station, but perhaps we're completely unaware that the <laughs> that the death star as perhaps the rebels called it you know maybe they called it the the, the fun star that was actually going to maybe have a very practical use that was going to help people you know like they went into it they were contracted like hey let's build this space station and it's actually going to help people that was what they went into it and then they die so with those families 
uh, would they have any legal recourse after that? Like if they actually legitimately thought that they were building a a useful uh, battle uh, station? Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting question. I think at this point in in galactic history, we'll take it sort of deep in canon. I think it would be hard for anyone to, to look. The, the destruction of Alderaan was notorious. Everybody knew that the Empire blew it up. The Empire wanted to know, uh, wanted the galaxy to know that they blew it up. And so I think it would be hard for any kind of contractor, as well-meaning as they might be, to look the other way by the time the second Death Star started to get built. I mean, that says nothing to the fact that it's like the exact same design as the original Death Star. It was just blown up. It's just a little bigger. So it's going to be hard for them to feign ignorance or plead ignorance uh, that they didn't know what the, the purpose of this battle station was for. But realistically, when contractors, because it, it, you go to any kind of combat zone on earth today, there are going to be civilian contractors that are accompanying the force there doing a wide variety of jobs. A lot of jobs that that have nothing to do with the combat mission. When I was in Afghanistan, we had civilian contractors cutting hair. We had civilian contractors serving meals. Uh, they're not carrying around weapons. They're not out there on patrol or kicking in doors or, or conducting raids. They're there just providing like life-sustaining activities. And there's an inherent risk that goes along with that. They're still considered civilians, so they're not supposed to be targeted uh, intentionally. But you know, in the context of the Death Star, I would say that you're sitting on one of the biggest legitimate military targets in the entire galaxy. And so it, it's going to be hard for one of them to, to argue that, hey, Empire, you you created this, uh, you were negligent or you were reckless in, in terms of your disregard for my own safety. The response to that, if they can even get around something like sovereign immunity, like the, the government's bar to litigation against itself, the response to that is going to be, you assume the risk. You knew the job that you were taking on this dangerous battle station alongside the Emperor's Finest Legion. And and I would absolutely expect like a black suited imperial attorney to, to have a response like that. So thinking about families and family recourse to some of these things, taking it back to Star Wars movies that I have seen <laughs> um, back in the beginning. So Darth Vader, if he didn't have a will... <laughs> uh, what happens to Luke and Leia? Do they now just like get the Empire? Like what happens? Yeah, if he, I, Vader seems like the kind of person that's too preoccupied to have sat down and drafted a will like with a an Imperial oh, sure. JAG officer. Uh, yeah, so to the extent that he had an estate to inherit, there would be a, de- a set of default rules that would kick in known as intestate succession. And what that does is, and every state in the U.S. has sort of a slight variation on these default rules. But if there's no will, intestate succession law will kick in and it'll look to your surviving heirs, so Luke and Leia, and it will distribute, it will provide a default set of rules on how your property should be split. Uh, so in the case of uh, those two, because Padme's wife has long since passed, uh, they'd likely take the property 50 50 including the helmet correct like does the helmet get split like <laughs> what happens to well, how do you think it got down to kylo ren and this is the hole in the movies that i have, and have not seen. <laughs> but it, it's uh i think the more likely scenario here is that you'd have luke or leia renounce their inheritance you might have them like anything that was like ill-gotten because of his uh his time in the empire so like 
his he's got this giant castle on Mustafar, that lava planet where he got his legs chopped off. I don't think that Luke or Leia would necessarily want that as a personal asset. So they might renounce that. Maybe they give it to charity or something like that. But <laughs> they give the lava planet. To yeah, charity. you you can have you can have. <laughs> My dad's castle, his death castle. Uh, so tell us, we got a bunch of questions uh, out to our audience, and we got a few if you might want to uh, go through some uh, quick hitter answers on some of them. So Sophie asks about the ownership of Anakin and his mom, and they were both slaves uh, on Tatooine, and why couldn't the Jedi get involved in that situation? They probably could have. I think that's the moral uh, conundrum that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan find themselves in. Because, and Padme points it out. She points out the hypocrisy. Well, you know, I thought that uh, slavery was outlawed in the galaxy. And Qui-Gon's sort of like, well, that's not the way the real world works, like way out here on the outskirts. And I think this is this is a longer discussion for another time. I think this is at the core of the, the rot within the Jedi Order is that injustices like this are actively going on in the galaxy. And where's the rest of the Jedi Order? At this point in time, you've got, you know, what, 10,000 Jedi Knights. They can't stop everything. They can't stamp out every problem. But I think the average person, certainly maybe the, the average slave on Tatooine would say, well, what the hell? Like, you take this kid because he's got a high midichlorian count and he's useful to you and to your ends or, or you know, the, the larger ends of the Jedi Order and the forces you see them. But where does that leave the rest of us that don't have those powers? And I think that's a fascinating discussion for another time. But I, it's one of the, I think, great failures of the Jedi Order. Absolutely. I really loved the way that Ryan Johnson uh, took that direction in The Last Jedi, you know, when Luke makes this realization that maybe the Jedi suck and maybe he went down a wrong path, you know, like he learned a lot of cool tricks. Uh, but as uh, as a dogma, as like this religion to follow, you know, it has flaws, just like uh, all all dogma religions do. Uh, an equally serious and important question that I think needs to be asked is from Parker, who asks, who is Baby Yoga's legal guardian? <laughs> <laughs> well, no one as of the end of The Mandalorian, because only a court can appoint a legal guardian. I think Din Djarin, the, the Mandalorian, as he's more commonly known, probably has a case to apply for legal guardianship. And in fact, the Legal Geeks did a... Uh, a mock guardianship hearing with like an actual Mandalorian cosplayer oh, wow. that, that's up on YouTube. Uh, and they had, he had like a little baby Yoda, but the standard is what's in the, in the best interest of the child. And I think a court's going to wrestle with the, this tug of war between the Mandalorians uh, core culture, as we see toward the end of the, the first season is one that he is now religiously charged with protecting this child until he's either returned to his parents, whoever they may be, or uh, until he reaches adulthood. That's how he was raised. He was rescued in the Clone Wars, and, and the Mandalorians did that for him and, and made him a foundling. And, and he's shown time after time in the first season that he's willing to, to, to you know lose his own life uh, in defense of this child. So I don't know that there's a better protector in the galaxy for that baby the problem for him is that as long as this baby is with him, it's like in constant peril, whether it's like remnant Imperial forces or like murderous uh, assassination droids or, or whatever. It's sort of like this, uh, this constant minefield. But I don't know that there's anybody else, at least in the immediate 
short term, they can take care of him and keep him safe. He would really love it, I think, if you were his reference for this <laughs> application. <laughs> uh, so, Kaylee, should we do a segment? Bring on that segment, Michael. What you about? What you about? So we'll start with uh, you, Thomas. Uh, what have you been nerding out about recently? Fans of the Clone Wars will be sort of united with me. We're, we're They've brought the Clone Wars back for its seventh and final season, 12 episodes to, to sort of wrap the series up uh, in its reanimation uh, from, from the dead. Tomorrow morning, at least in the U.S., the first of the last four episodes, the last arc which is the the Siege of Mandalore starts. And it's like the penultimate story arc for this series to wrap up on. Basically, it's uh, Darth Maul and his criminal enterprise versus the Jedi and Ahsoka Tano. And it's going to be just an epic four-part story arc. I can't wait for it. I'm getting up before the sun even rises to watch this thing. Is your daughter waking up with you to watch it? She wakes up at like 6 a.m. anyhow, so I have to back my time up and watch it ahead of her. That's really cute. <laughs> Uh, Michael, yes. what are you nerding about? Uh, well, uh, the day that we're recording this actually is April 16th, but I am working on an event that will be April 22nd, uh, and it's Earth Day. And I work at the, the Space Center, the Planetarium, and uh, honestly, I have to say, I wasn't really that interested in doing an Earth Day event, you know, back like last year we were planning it and we actually weren't, we were actually going to rebrand it Earth 2099. But now, you know... I honestly feel that like celebrating Earth Day actually means something now. And actually, I've uh, been thinking about, you know, where Earth Day comes from. And the 1970 was the very first Earth Day. And that's because astronauts went out into space and took pictures of our home planet. And you saw, you know, all of the, the worlds that were in conflict at the time, you know, there were uh, countries at war, but astronauts noted that there was no borders. It was just land and water and, and, and sky. And this is really the start of the cosmic perspective. And it actually started the whole environmental movement that uh, Earth Day is all about. So uh, I've been pulling together some of these thoughts uh, for our event. Uh, so in the future, when people are listening to this, uh, you should be able to see our Cosmic Night online Earth Day event. Uh, uh, on the uh, on YouTube. I'm excited to see some of those because I've been to Cosmic Nights in person and they're really, really fun. I hope not to get too drunk if I'm not <laughs> hosting it. Uh, what about you, Kaylee? What are you nerding about? Oh my goodness. Well, Michael, as you know, I am in the finishing stages of my thesis and my thesis is all about urban rats and, and where they move and the pathogens that they carry. And right now, as I'm, as I'm writing these conclusions to my thesis, I'm seeing all these notifications about rats moving through the streets more than we would normally see them moving. And it seems that maybe some of these closures of restaurants and, and limiting access to food may be causing rats to move further and maybe be more active. So it's sort of been uh, what I've been nerding about lately. So the, while the rat detective is busy, you know, finishing your PhD, you know, all this activity is happening out there. They're waiting for you to return. Finally, they start moving because usually they don't move all that much. Now they're out there moving and I just can't go track them. Uh, well, Thomas, that brings us to the end of uh, this episode of Nerdin' About. And in uh, this group that you're associated with, The Legal Geeks, uh, where could people find out more about them? Yeah, so it's thelegalgeeks.com. And then so that that has all the blog and uh, we link to the podcast on there. You can find the podcast really anywhere that you can download podcasts. And then on Twitter at The Legal Geeks. 
and same thing on Instagram. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us. This was really, really fun. Oh, yeah. This is a lot of fun. I learned a lot about Star Wars <laughs> and things <laughs> I have not seen yet. And thank you for tuning in uh, and listening to our third episode of Nerd and About. Um, you can leave us a review, I think, on these various podcast platforms. If you got something nice to say, let us know. If you don't have something nice to say, maybe wait a couple months till I've defended my thesis. That would be great. <laughs> and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at NerdNightYVR. Thanks so much for tuning in. May the fourth be with you, everyone. Bye.